A fresh reminder that on the second page of the document you got at the door is a whole list of different sentences that are missing a word. And that will appear up on the screen as I'm going through the sermon and you can write them in if you'd like a bit of a record of what was said and also just to kind of keep the momentum and keep your attention. I trust that that's useful. We've also got something you can colour in there or scribble on if you find that to be a useful way of concentrating as well. Let me lead us in prayer. We ask our Heavenly Father that as we come to look at the Bible that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. And we particularly ask that you would help us understand why it is that we can trust that the dead will rise, that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Amen. Hi, my name is John. I'm a 46-year-old banker and I have been living my whole life the opposite of how I wanted. All my dreams, my passion, gone. In a steady nine to seven job, six days a week for 26 years. I repeatedly chose the safe path for everything which eventually changed who I was. Today I found out my wife has been cheating on me for the last 10 years. My son feels nothing for me. I realised I missed my father's funeral for nothing. If my younger self had met me today, I would have punched myself in the face. Well, so wrote John Jerryson in an internet forum that's normally reserved for funny stories about silly mistakes in life, but John's whole life was a mistake. His whole life was wasted. Have you wasted your life? If you're still young, you probably won't ask yourself that question just yet, but if you're in your 40s or 50s or a little bit older, chances are you might have asked that question, maybe once or maybe more. So have you wasted your life? And how would you know if you had? Well, it depends on what you're living for. It depends on your purpose. You see, for John on the internet, he realised too late that his real purpose was to have a good relationship with his wife and his son and his father. But when those relationships failed, he realised he had wasted his life. But what about you? What are you looking for? What is your purpose? I think for most of us here, we are living for eternal life. We know that after our funeral, our future continues with certainty. We are defined by our future, our eternal future. And all our confidence rests on the fact that there actually is life after death. We live today knowing that, that there is life after we die. We truly believe that our soul is eternal and that even though our bodies will decay in the grave, our souls will continue for eternity. But why would we have that confidence? 
Why would we believe that we have certainty for eternity? Well, the simple answer is because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the ultimate reality for all who follow Jesus. It's the ultimate reality for everyone who believes that Jesus is Lord. Which means that in the end, there's a simple way to know whether or not we've wasted our life. And it all comes down to one historical event. The resurrection of Jesus. We believe in eternity because of the resurrection. And so if you think that there is life after death, it's all because Jesus really came back to life from the grave. And that's what we're going to see now as we come to this next bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We started this series in 1 Corinthians nearly a year ago. This is the 30th talk. We've got two more after this. And today in particular, we will be looking at the resurrection, the rising of Jesus from the dead. The chapter is all about that. And it started last week with Paul, who wrote the letter to the church, telling them about what mattered most. He said in verse 3 to 6, he said, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. And this is it. He said, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And on the third day, just as the scriptures said, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And then after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, although most of whom they are still alive, though some have died. This is the heart of what Christians believe. In fact, it's at the very heart of the universe. But what if it's not actually true? What if it's actually a myth, a fable, a fairy tale? What if Jesus didn't really live and die and rise again? What if he's just made up like that white-bearded bloke in the red suit at Christmas time? This is the kind of question that Paul raises in the passage before us today, verses 12 to 34 of chapter 15. And he wants us all to think about this question. Did Jesus really rise? Because if the answer is no, we have all wasted our lives really, really badly, especially those who have died because of the message of Jesus. That would be the most tragic waste of life you could imagine. But if it's actually true that Jesus rose from the dead, then if you die rejecting that truth, then you've wasted your life even more. Because if you reject the resurrection, you've wasted your life. So with all of that in mind, let's start with Paul's challenge to these people in Corinth, in first century Greece. These Christians have started to doubt that there's actually life after death. Verse 12, he says... But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? He's already said to them, this is what we're on about. We're on about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But some of you have denied that foundational truth. Some Christians are saying there's actually no rising to new life for people who trust in Jesus. That there's no resurrection of the dead. It's a pretty unusual thing for a Christian to say, wouldn't you think? I mean, you might expect atheists to say that. Atheists who say there's nothing more to life than just atoms. See, those atheists are like my former work colleague who said that life is just like a game of cricket. 
The bowler knocks over your stumps, the umpire puts his finger in the air and you walk back to the pavilion with your bat under your arm. And that is it. Game over. Now You could believe that if you're an atheist. But a Christian? Be strange, wouldn't it? And that's what was happening in first century Corinth. And obviously there are big problems with being a Christian who doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Here's one, verse 13. He says, For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. Basically everything's a problem. The message that's preached is useless, and our faith in that message is useless. But that's not all. Verse 15. And this is the case because our resurrection is linked with Jesus' resurrection. Our resurrection is linked with Jesus' resurrection. For he says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. Everything is useless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But that's not all, verse 15 and 16. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If there's no resurrection, it would mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and it meant that all those apostles were big, fat liars. It was the biggest fraud of history. And he's saying, do you guys really believe that? Because if Jesus didn't rise, Christianity is a fraud. You know, a lot of people have tried to say this throughout history, that Christianity is just a fraud and that the resurrection of Jesus was a myth. People have said, for example, that the disciples stole the body. But how did they get around the soldiers who were guarding the tomb? Others say that Jesus didn't really die. But how do they account for the fact that the sword that pierced Jesus aside produced Blood and water that had separated, which it's a medical fact that that shows that the body has died. Others say that all the people who saw the resurrected Jesus were hypnotised. But lots of people saw the risen Jesus on many occasions and at one stage over 500 at one time. Do you think every single one of them were hypnotised? Others say that people just made the story up to promote their religion. But why would you die for a lie? It's hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I've got to say it's harder to believe he didn't. And if you want to go and have an in-depth look at the evidence, there's two books I recommend to you. One I read many, many years ago called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Another one is Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. These two books were written by sceptics. The first one, Who Moved the Stone, was written by a sceptical lawyer who was won over. And the other one was, read by a, was written by a sceptical forensic detective who was then won over by the evidence. It's not stupid to think that the resurrection of Jesus is true. In fact, it might be more stupid to deny it. But there's another reason why the resurrection really matters. That's verse 17. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, 
then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. If Jesus stayed dead, then he didn't defeat death, which meant he was just another guy who died. And we have our belief in a human from 2,000 years ago who preached and did some impressive tricks and then died, but that would be all. You know, if we could find Jesus' remains and prove from DNA testing that they really were from Jesus, our whole faith would be useless. And worst of all, we would still be guilty of our sins. Still guilty of our sins. Do you realise that when you have faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven? Do you realise that when you trust in Jesus, God no longer looks at you as guilty? He looks you in the eye and sees you as being innocent, not guilty. It's an extraordinary truth. But do you carry on your shoulders at the moment the, the weight of guilt from your past or even for your present? Do you feel like there's no way that God could possibly forgive you for your failures? Do you feel burdened by guilt and shame? Friend, the empty tomb means your guilt is gone. Gone for good. How could there possibly be a better story than that? How could there possibly be a better truth than that? To know that whatever is upon your shoulders that is weighing you down like a 30 kilo backpack, pulling you almost over and making you impossible to stand, that is relieved by Jesus because of the empty tomb. Because he took your punishment Instead of you, he exchanged your sin for his sinlessness. And it all happened at his death. But without his resurrection, it would have failed. Verse 18. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. See, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, every funeral that's been run as a Christian in the last twenty in the last two thousand years is a hoax, is a fraud. All the promises were just wrong, were just lies. Those who have died are just nothing more than a memory. No heaven, no eternal life, no nothing. And if that is the case, verse 19, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. As if Christianity is only useful for life on earth then ultimately Christians are a joke, a laughing stock. Which is actually why the Bible says that liberal, progressive Christianity is also a joke. Liberal Christianity is to be pitied. Think about it. How could you possibly be a Christian minister and yet think that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You would think there would be none of them around, surely. Well, 20 years ago, 2,000 ministers in the UK completed a survey. And from those 2,000 ministers, it revealed that a third of Church of England clergy doubt or disbelieve in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. One third of Anglican ministers 20 years ago in the UK said, I'm just not so sure that Jesus rose from the dead, or I'm sure... He did not rise from the dead. Can you get your head around that? They are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. Because their hope in Christ is only for this life. 
They just do Christian stuff. They put on the Christian gear. They do the stuff in the Christian church. Why? Just to basically help us be comfortable whilst the ship is sinking. And they are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Christ has been raised from the dead. It's no fairy tale. It is as real as real can be. And because he's risen from the dead, he has set off a chain reaction, a chain reaction that will never stop. He's opened the door to eternity and we will come with him if we believe in him and if we follow him. But how? Verse 21 and 22. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. And then the next verse, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, that's the Adam of Adam and Eve at the start of the Bible, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And you see why the resurrection of Jesus matters? It's because one man, Adam, brought death into the world and one man, Jesus, brought life into the world. Jesus reversed the damage brought by Adam. Uh, What did Adam do? Well, he basically chose to reject God's rule. He said, I want to be king myself. I don't want to have somebody else be king at all, thanks. And from that moment, he brought about a curse and a punishment that no human could fix. No human at all, except for one, Jesus Because Jesus was the only man who actually followed God's rule. And because he actually followed God's rule, he died not under God's anger. Everybody else, naturally, God's angry with us, but not Jesus. And so he said, I'm not deserving of any God's anger. God's not angry at me. Why don't I take the anger that God has for everybody else upon myself. That's what Jesus did. He swapped. It was the great exchange. He took God's anger upon himself. And because he rose from the dead, he proved that he destroyed death and he brought life to those of us who believe in him. He started it all. Verse 23. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. You see, Jesus was the first to rise, and because of that, when Jesus returns, all who have died trusting in him will also rise to life. The time is coming when every dead follower of Jesus will come alive. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. But that's not all. Verse 24 and 25, after that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. See, Jesus is like a mighty, conquering military king. And so he 
when he returns, will bring about the final destruction of every power that stands against him. Satan and all who stand against Jesus know that their time is coming to an end. The resurrection of Jesus showed that death is defeated. And when Jesus returns, his victory will be seen by everyone as he rules under the authority of his heavenly Father. And the time will come when we will see the final destruction of death. Verse 26, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, death is the greatest enemy of humanity. And that's because sin is the greatest problem in humanity. Every other problem, as big as they might be, they pale in comparison. Climate change, inequality, nuclear threat, add to the list as you wish. Nothing on that list is greater than the problem of death. And the only solution that exists for death is hope in the risen Jesus. Every other problem, every other solution is ultimately unimportant. And so are all the other politics that continue to focus our attention. Because the only rulers who truly rule are Jesus and his Father. Verse 27, for the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. God the Father put all things under Jesus to be ruled by him except God the Father himself. But the time is coming when we will see that authority that the Father has over everything and it will be awesome. Every single human superpower will look like an ant compared to God who reigns supreme. That day is coming. And so that is why it is vital that we are on God's side. We've all got to be on God's side. And to do that, we need to put our trust in Jesus, the only one who has defeated death. He's the only one who gives us hope for eternity. So where does that put you? Where do you sit with all of this? Do you trust in Jesus? Or do you continue to trust in yourself and in humanity? The problem is that if you trust in earthly rulers, then it will only lead to failure. Because the best that a human ruler and a human religious can do is just give our world palliative care. Just help us numb the pain as we stand towards the thing that cannot be fixed, death. But Christ has risen from the dead. And so if you trust in him, then in him alone is the solution to the greatest problem that has ever faced humanity. Because the dead will rise one day. Everyone who is dead will come to life. And that is why we need to trust in Jesus before that time. One of the ways that we've shown to do that is actually through baptism. It's a way of showing outwardly what God has done inwardly through us by faith. 
Paul's now going to sort of naturally talk about baptism as he comes to this bit because he wants to talk about the reality of us making a statement for what we believe. But what kind of baptism is he talking about? Well, verse 29, he says, If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptised for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Uh, it always warms my heart when I'm looking at a reference book um, and to prepare my sermons, and it says that this is the hardest verse in the whole of 1 Corinthians, and that at last count there were 40 different interpretations. Um, why is this verse hard to understand? Well, if you didn't notice, let me have a, show it to you again. It talks about people being baptised for those who are dead. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, what kind of practice would actually say, you know, my auntie died 10 years ago, don't know if she was baptised, so next Sunday morning we're going to have a baptism for my dead auntie. Is that weird? Yes. Do we see the Apostle Paul talking about it as a normal thing in the church? No. And so we read this and go, huh, what on earth is happening here? Well, clearly it can't be talking about literally that, that Someone would baptise on behalf of a dead person. So what could it be talking about? Well, you can, I can show you the section in the book where it talks about the 40 different possibilities. But I think the most likely is actually not that complicated. And that is, I think it's talking about people getting baptised today in terms of their own death. A baptism for the death, for their own death. It's being baptised for the dead which is the person who's going to die. That It's kind of like saying, you know, what, what point is there in being baptised in preparation for your own death if there's actually no rising after you die? Now, it's not the perfect solution to this challenging verse. There are other good ones out there as well, but I think it probably makes the most amount of sense. That basically, in the whole scheme of things, if the dead are not going to someday rise again... What purpose is there in anyone being baptised for their dead? Because if the dead don't rise, baptism is meaningless. But if we will rise again, it's good to be baptised. It's good to stand up and say what it is that you believe. Because it shows that we trust in Jesus and we know that we will rise like Jesus did. Because to trust in Jesus is to show that we really believe there is such a thing as life after death. And sometimes showing that trust is as simple and, and as relatively small as just saying, I follow Jesus. And that's it. Relatively simple, relatively small. But that's not the case around the world, everywhere. Since in some places... You say that Jesus is Lord and you risk your life. You tell others that Jesus is Lord and you definitely risk your life. Every day people die for their faith in Jesus. Every day people are persecuted for believing in him and sharing the gospel, which is probably another powerful reason why the testimony of the apostles shows that Jesus really did rise. In verse 30, he says, And why should we ourselves risk our lives, our by hour. For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. He basically says, 
His commitment to following Jesus has been costly. Following Jesus was costly for Paul. He risked his life hour by hour by declaring that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus rose from the dead. It led him to face death daily. And there's no way that he'd get out of bed and say, hey, I'm ready to get bashed up again for following Jesus if it wasn't actually true that he rose from the dead. No way he'd face that persecution. But his dedication to Jesus and the truth of the resurrection is certain to Paul and to others. And he says it's as strong as is his pride in the work of Jesus in their lives. He's seen the evidence of Jesus in the lives of those who are in his church. He's seen them have truly changed lives, transformed lives that have been transformed because they've trusted in the risen Jesus. New lives have been given because of the gospel and their conversion to Christ brought joy to Paul. And I've got to say, it is such a great joy to me when I see your lives transformed by the gospel. When you say no to temptation. When some of you have come to faith in Jesus in the last few years, from darkness to light. What a profound joy. There's nothing greater for me. That is the conversion to Christ that brought joy to Paul and it's the conversion to Christ that brings joy to us as we ourselves see that too. And not only that, there's another reason that shows the truth of the resurrection and that is that why would Paul bother being bashed up for preaching Christ if it wasn't true? 32a, he says, and what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people from Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? He faced regular physical attacks for believing and proclaiming Christ. Why would he do that if it was a fairy tale? Why would he do that if it was a fraud? It's only because he knows it's true that he would put his body on the line. And in fact, in closing, he actually brings up another important thing. And that is that if there is, verse 32b, no resurrection... Let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Or as another translation would say it, eat, drink and be merry. See, if there's no life after death, just party, just pursue pleasure. Because the only reason that our society actually worries about any form of morality is because some of those who gave us laws and customs and values thought there actually was some sort of life after death. See, without the resurrection, there's no merit in morality. The inbuilt in our psyche is the idea of some sort of justice and some sort of judgment. We, we can't ultimately get our heads around the fact that some of those people who have done unspeakable, immoral, horrible acts will get away with it. We can't get our head around that. But if you think there's no resurrection of the dead, then you think, oh, well, Lucky them. Our view of eternity makes us think that there is a resurrection of the dead. But if there's nothing after we die, then it means that life is just for now and there's no reason to do anything except serve yourself. That's pretty pessimistic, isn't it? 
But that's actually what atheism leads to. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can breathe the oxygen of atheism. Uh, little things of atheism can get, just get into our bloodstream accidentally. And so the Apostle Paul says, check this out. Verse 33, don't be fooled by those who say such things. For bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. And this is the final point he says for today. Be careful hanging around people who are atheists because their view of life changes everything and it gets everything wrong because ultimately you're at risk of being spiritually corrupted. Now he doesn't say have nothing to do with people who don't follow Jesus because he said the opposite elsewhere in this very letter. Meat sacrificed to idols, that whole thing. Remember that months and months ago when we got to that? But he is saying, be careful around those who preach that Jesus did not rise. Because as you think about this, there might be a slippery slope or even a cliff that you could fall off if you deny the reality of eternity. Because is it possible that there's anything worse in life than being raised from the dead only to then be judged guilty by Jesus? Is there anything worse in life? And the answer is no. There is no greater mistake than rejecting Jesus. There's no greater mistake, there's no greater failure, especially if you've heard the gospel of Jesus and have rejected it. And friends, every one of you in this room have heard the gospel of Jesus. We've all heard that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and he showed himself to hundreds. All of us know that, but some of us will reject it. But if you do that, you will have truly wasted your life.